The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. But what we have now is something that has not been sufficiently discussed or sufficiently understood, which is a criminalized state of which Russia is an example. In the Balkans, we have some examples. In Latin America, Venezuela stands out as an example. And that is essentially that the state becomes an organized criminal organization, an organization that essentially uses the structure, strategies, tactics, modalities of organized crime. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for listening to The Democracy Paradox, a podcast on democracy, democratization, and world affairs. Each week, you'll learn about ideas largely absent from traditional political discourse. These are complex ideas that might be unfamiliar, so I've provided a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com, along with a short review of today's book. You can also support the podcast at Patreon for as little as $5 per month. Supporters have access to bonus material like this week's conversation with Richard Davies on the art of the interview. Richard is the co-host of the podcasts How Do We Fix It and Let's Find Common Ground. I recommend Let's Find Common Ground for anybody who is concerned about political polarization. They showcase guests who find ways to overcome the country's partisan divide. So check out Let's Find Common Ground and consider becoming a patron to listen to my conversation with Richard. Now, today's guest is Moises Naim. He is a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an internationally syndicated columnist. He served as editor-in-chief of foreign policy, as Venezuela's trade minister, and as executive director of the World Bank. But many of us remember him as the author of The End of Power. He's back with a new book called The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. Our conversation explores how autocracy is different in the 21st century, how it poses a unique challenge to democracy today, and yes, we do discuss Putin, Russia, and the war in Ukraine. But what I found most fascinating was when Moises walked me through his intellectual development and how he thinks about power. It's very personal account and immensely powerful. So let's get started. Here is my conversation with Moises Naim. Moses Naim, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So Moises, I've actually listened to a lot of your interviews, and I notice how almost everybody asks you 
about Donald Trump. And you've got a very funny response. You always say, I've seen this movie before, but in Spanish. And you're referring to the rise of Hugo Chavez in your country of Venezuela when you say that. So why don't we start there? When did you recognize the danger that Hugo Chavez posed? Well, after he was democratically elected, he immediately developed habits and ways of governing that sounded and felt undemocratic. And in the book, I have a script, if you will, that is followed by these autocrats. And he was following it, you know, the demonization of the media and the opposition, denying that anything good happened before his arrival, describing the past in ways that were terrible. So it started little by little, you know, these new autocrats that I discuss in the book are not event autocrats. You know, it used to be that you had coup d'etats and shifts of power, the military taking power. It was an event, you know, a bunch of generals with dark glasses go on television and declare that they're running the country, period. And that was an event. That still happens, you know, from time to time. We just saw it in Burma recently where the military junta just took power. That was an event, even though uh, there was some longer context to that. But what I'm aiming at is uh, the description of a process. The backsliding of these democracies into autocracies doesn't happen one day with one event, but it happens as a process in which a lot of small things, some of them invisible to the naked eye, that happen deep inside the administration, deep inside Congress, deep inside the Supreme Court. You know, little things or big things that happen that uh, you have to be very watchful. And so stealthiness is part of the process of backsliding. And then all of a sudden, you discover that the president is directly or indirectly controlling all of the checks and balances that are designed to define a democracy. And they are designed to curtail the power of the chief executive. Now, when Donald Trump ran for president, up until he was elected, I really didn't think it was going to happen. When Hugo Chavez declared his candidacy for president. I can't imagine that anyone took him seriously. He had been let out of jail for literally trying to stage the kind of coup you just described doesn't happen as frequently anymore. Did you believe that Hugo Chavez was going to take power? And even after he was elected, did you think it was going to turn out as badly as it did? One of the occupational hazards of a columnist like me is that wrong columns, big mistakes are on the record. And I was on the record saying that I didn't believe that Hugo Chavez would last very long because his policies were so drastically, severely at odds with what was the norm in the country and what was necessary in the country that I said, you know, this guy cannot last. He was also attacking in very undemocratic ways the basic institutions of democracy. So I wrote a column saying that, you know, we, we should give him his full term in office, uh, let him govern. And unfortunately, you know, his successor will inherit a mess, but we will continue to have a democracy in which, you know, the different political parties alternate in power. Well, big mistake. Hugo Chavez was in power and now his successor's anointed successor is in power for now for um, over two decades. And with no indication that there's going to be a regime change. So, you know, yes, uh, so you're right. It was very clear to me at the time that that was impossible, and then it happened. Well, I'm sure you weren't the only one at the time. I want to kind of pivot over to what makes today's autocrats different. In the book you write, 
In their quest for absolute power, today's aspiring autocrats are duplicitous in ways their 20th century predecessors seldom needed to be. So, Moises, what makes today's autocrats different from their predecessors? Technology, society, distribution of power, the ways in which power is acquired, used, and abused, and sometimes lost. And by technology, notably, importantly, of course, have to include the internet and social media and all the platforms. The internet, we were told, was a tool of liberation in which Democrats around the world would use to coordinate their actions and work challenging the dictator in their country or the autocrat. And well, yeah, that happened, but we also saw how the autocrat also learned to use the internet and the social media. We were told that the internet was going to provide us more information than ever, that we will have access at very low cost or a zero cost in principle to all the information in the world and will be very well informed individuals and citizens and voters. Well, it happened, but in the way that we know that social media have been used as a weapon against democracy in, in many countries, it's highly amplified and empowered by the, what is called the post-truth, which is one of the three Ps I discuss in the book, post-truth, populism, and polarization. So why don't you, we dive in just a little bit more into that? Because when I think about the ideas of populism, post-truth, and polarization, it feels like they've always existed, and it feels like they've always existed together in a lot of ways. Like when I think of the rise of Adolf Hitler, when I think of the rise of Mussolini, during the last major rise of autocracy, they tended to use these same exact types of tools. What makes those tools different in the 21st century than somebody like a Hitler or Mussolini would apply similar types of tools? Absolutely. That's a very important question. And in the book, I go out of the way to stress that these three strategies or approaches have always been with us since time immemorial. Populism is nothing more than the modern expression of divide and conquer, a very old uh, approach uh, used by old politicians and the military and, and tyrants around the world. And so they have always existed polarization, which is a clashing of different interests and perspectives and behaviors and identities also existed. And post-truth was traditionally called propaganda, which is the use of misinformation and manipulation of information at the service of the regime. Hitler, you brought him up, had a minister of propaganda headed by Goebbels. So what is new is that now that propaganda is not just managed and used and relied upon by governments, but we have millions of individuals that are participating in the process in some ways, in a very constructive ways, in other ways, in a very, very destructive way, the democratic ways. But what is new is how these three set of tools are intertwined and reinforce each other and become very potent. And again, technology is part of that, but the other part of that is this is a truly global phenomenon. We see not just in the heart of Europe, but we also see it in the United States, in the Western Hemisphere, in Africa and Asia, and so on. It's truly global. And so there are many features of novelty on these three sets of tools, but the core is, as you said, very old. So one of the things I notice about the three P autocrats is that they very much embrace elections. I don't know if I want to go so far as to say all of them do. I mean, 
I think we could debate whether or not a politician like Xi Jinping falls under a 3P autocrat, or if we're only talking about populists like Viktor Orban or Erdogan or some of those others. But I do think elections really do differentiate a lot of these politicians of today, the way that they don't get rid of elections, they seem to thrive on them. And they not only get elected, but oftentimes they get re-elected multiple times before the elections no longer remain free nor fair. In the book you write, the 3P autocrats became popular because of their authoritarianism, not despite it. That was one of the most striking lines in the entire book for me. It's jarring. It just catches me off guard. Why would people support a candidate because of their authoritarianism? So let me unpack your question. There are actually a couple of questions there. First is elections. And I'm finishing up a new research project in which I became curious about the frequency of elections because it seemed to me that there were a lot of elections. So I started studying and there are two facts that are complex to reconcile. One fact is that the number of people in the world that live in autocracies has increased and those that live in democratic regime have been decreasing for the last 15 years. Larry Diamond, a professor at Stanford, calls this the democratic recession. So. On the one hand, then, you have democracy in decline. On the other hand, and this is a result of my research, is that there are elections everywhere, all the time, for all kinds of things. The world is in an election mode all the time. And, you know, from uh, president, prime minister, members of Congress, governors, state and local authorities, judges, everything. I bet you that uh, as we speak, there is uh, some kind of election going on somewhere. How do you reconcile a declining democracy in a booming election mode? The answer there, of course, is that a lot of these elections are sham elections. They have all the theatrics of the elections. They have all of the institutional characteristics of elections. But we know who's going to win by lag margin because the elections are tricked. Saddam Hussein systematically got 92% of the vote. Same Gaddafi, same Vladimir Putin. Same Nicolas Maduro. And, and once you have that, you know, it trickles down to everybody. So elections are very often a sham, uh, very often tricked. And so the question then becomes why do they do it? Why do they need to do that? Why did Putin need to go through all the contortions, institutional, legal, political, international, communicational, all kinds of things he had to do in order to stay in power, looking like a Democrat? Well, because he needed legitimacy. Legitimacy is the most needed condition in politics and is a very short supply. Legitimacy is the authority that the voters bestow on a leader or a group of leaders to give them the authority to govern them. You become legitimate because a bunch of voters decided that they trust you. That's legitimacy. And legitimacy is in short supply in the world. There are many kinds of sources of legitimacy, but too relevant for this conversation is the legitimacy that is derived from the origin of this power. So the origin is an election, and that gives you a lot of legitimacy. If you win the elections, you're very legitimate. But there's another kind of legitimacy that depends on your performance. You might have won the election, but your performance is terrible, and the people are very unhappy, and they don't like what you're doing. So you would become illegitimate in many ways, or your legitimacy decreases. Well, around the world, in this time and age, 
it's very hard to be successful governing. Governing has become, has always been hard, but now it's harder than ever. We are going through a bunch of crises, a bunch of situations that are, have no precedent. It's very hard to be a successful head of state or elected official. And so they try to find anything that will help them gain some legitimacy. So I find that elections are an important part of the 3P autocrat. It is something that really differentiates them from autocrats in the past, like... I don't know, a Russian autocrat in the 19th century would have just thought elections were crazy. They wouldn't have considered them at all. But many of the autocrats today, Nicolas Maduro, many others, like I said, thrive on those elections. They depend on them for legitimacy, like you just said. But there are still autocrats that exist that seem to have some of the characteristics of the 3P autocrat that don't depend on elections. Do you think that Xi Jinping fits the mold of a 3P autocrat? Are there other autocrats that you think of that don't use elections that fit the 3P autocrat archetype? Of course, there are many. Uh, the Iranian theocracy, they're just pure dictators. Is it a 3P autocrat, though, or is it more of a different type, even an older style of an autocrat? One can safely say is that they use the tools of the three Ps. So Xi Jinping has used populism, and a lot of his policies, in some cases, have been highly populist. He has also increased polarization. Remember, he had this big campaign against corruption, which probably was necessary and welcome, but the small detail there was the people that went to jail were his critics, not his supporters. And then in Saudi Arabia, they also went big time after corruption, but it essentially was to make sure that the critics would not be too powerful. So we have polarization in, in these countries, and we had, of course, the use of alternative reality, which we call post-truth. And we have seen China using post-truth. We have seen Egypt using it. We have seen Lukashenko in Belarus using that. These are pure dictators, but you know, why shouldn't they use the tools of the three piece? So as I'm reading your books, you obviously refer to the idea of power in a lot of your work and a lot of your ideas. But at the same time, it feels a lot more like a metaphor sometimes to me than a realized concept. So I'd like to take a moment to just take a step back and allow you in your own words to describe power. Well, let me do two things. I'll give you a conceptual answer, and then I give you an experiential answer. The conceptual answer is that the definition of power has not changed. It is what it has always been is the capacity of one individual or institution to make others do or stop doing something. You know, we can make it as complicated as one wants and recite the historical scholars, Foucault, and, you know, we can go into that route of parsing the detail, the definition of democracy. But there's an agreement that as a basis, what I just described, the capacity to make others or stop doing something or stop doing something now or in the future is a definition everybody agrees. So once you have that, then you ask, well, where are the origins? Where are the sources of that? And that it has changed. The basic definition has not changed by the sources and the constraints and the ways of using democracy have changed. That was the theme of my book, The End of Power. 
that essentially looked at the forces that were fragmenting, weakening power around the world, making it harder to use. The central conclusion of that book is that power had become easier to acquire, harder to use, and easier to lose. That is the conceptual answer to your question. If I may, briefly, let me give you my personal experience. It started when I was in government in Venezuela. I was the Minister of Industry and Trade, and also we call it Fomento, development. And it was very complex. It was very difficult. But something that really struck at me is the lack of proportion between what people thought was my power and what it really was. It was a big disconnect between what people expected and assumed that I could do and what I, I knew the constraints I had. I felt very constrained. Then I went, after being the minister, I went to the World Bank and I became an executive director of the World Bank, a position that put me in touch with governments and government officials and heads of state and ministers from around the world. And I made it my business to always ask how they felt about power. And it was incredible to discover how each of them felt that they were deeply constrained, that they were, you know, this lack of proportion between uh, responsibilities and authorities and resources and the capacity to make things happen was exaggerated and they were deeply constrained. After that, I left the bank and I started looking at globalization. And I was at the time the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. And our interest was to try to understand what were the surprising new links that were happening as a result of deeper integration around the world. And as I was studying that, I caught my eye that some of the early adopters, the most effective early adopters of the opportunities created by the new world were criminals. And I started studying criminals and the transnational criminal networks just to understand globalization because they exploited the opportunities of globalization in a way that was faster, deeper, and more effective than any other entity that was globalizing. You know, we were at the time in the late 90s in which everything was going global, religions and politicians and ideologies and companies and hobbyists and terrorists, criminal cartels, everyone was going global. and so. By looking at the criminal cartels, the transnational criminal cartels, I got a very interesting perspective on what was happening. And the essence of what was happening is that these cartels were winning the wars against government. No government could show any success in fighting drug cartels or people trafficking cartels or money laundering. And so who had the power there and how? And so that led me to try to understand what were the determinants of power and who had it, who was using it, who was losing it. And so I have been tracking it. And as a result of that, this is the new book, The Revenge of Power, that tries to understand the first book, The End of Power, was looking at the forces that weaken power. This one looks at the forces that strengthen and concentrate power. So... You just mentioned about how criminalization was one of the leaders in globalization, and that's a theme that comes through in your recent book. But it's also something that we're dealing with in the real world right now with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, I don't think that there's any other country that fits the archetype of the criminal state better than Russia. And it's a topic that a lot of people have recognized. 
Jan Werner Mueller's, in his recent book, he wrote, involving others in criminality compels their loyalty to the regime. I mean, using the idea of making people feel that the only choice is to break the law, to be able to succeed, to be able to survive inside of a regime, makes it so that you become complicit even in that criminality. How does that criminalization really transform the way that politics works and power works for just ordinary people? So let me answer that with the evolution of of a concept and where it started and where are we now? And that is the concept of corruption. It all started with corruption. And essentially, you talk about very often, one talks about the corruption of this or that regime or this or that individual. And essentially, it has to do with somebody inside the state, inside the government, in cahoots with somebody in the private sector, quote unquote, outside the government, that they collude in order to extract rents, either by stealing 20% of the highway that was built or by changing permit to build somewhere and the zoning. And just by changing the zoning, you add several millions to your pocket. There's a long list of corruption based on this collusion between outside the government agents and government officials. So that's corruption. But then in some cases, it got really big, huge. And we started calling them kleptocracies. Very often, we refer to African cases in which the dictator and his family and cronies and the military just looted the country. And their main purpose was, of course, lining their own pockets and uh, becoming very, very wealthy. But they didn't use the criminality and the corruption to go beyond stealing. But what we have now is something that has not been sufficiently discussed and sufficiently understood, which is a criminalized state of which Russia is an example. In the Balkans, we have some examples. In Latin America, Venezuela stands out as an example. And that is essentially that the state becomes an organized criminal organization, an organization that essentially uses the structure, strategies, tactics, modalities of organized crime and is embedded in the state. It's not that there is a different agent outside the state, and they're not just using the money to enrich themselves. That's the top priority, to make a lot of money for them and their cronies. But they don't stop there. They use criminal behavior as a tool of stagecraft. They use criminality at the service of the foreign policy, for example. They use it to repress and harass and sometimes assassinate adversaries and critics at home and abroad. So criminalization, the criminalization of the state becomes a tool of statecraft. And that is very different because there is the profit motive, but also there is the power motive and the use of organized crime as a tool of power. Also reminds me of Tom Burgess's book, Kleptopia, where he draws direct lines of how people in countries that are not by their nature corrupt become involved in the criminal process because you're filtering money from one place to another that the next thing you know, the money's in Great Britain, the money's in the United States. And the United States then becomes complicit in the criminal behavior itself because it's financing and fueling some of those behaviors. Do you think that some of the sanctions that are being placed on Russia that are effectively decoupling it from the world economy Do you think that that has the potential to help cleanse some of the liberal democracies from some of this 
criminal behavior? I surely hope so. I did hope so. I have seen and been very frustrated by watching the tolerance that democracies around the world have for public officials and politicians from other countries. Spain is a painful example for Venezuelans because the level of thievery, corruption and stealing that went on in Venezuela before being the catastrophe that it is today. Venezuela was one of the world's leading producers of oil. So there was a lot of wealth that accrued to the state that was essentially stolen by Hugo Chavez, by Nicolás Maduro, his successor, and the families of friends and the military. And that money is being enjoyed and invested and used in Spain, a lot of it. There are whole neighborhoods in Madrid that used to be the poshest neighborhoods that are now filled with Venezuelan thieves, with, you know, elegantly dressed, with living in mansions with big cars. But they all use stolen money. The same you can say with London, very often called London Stand, because, you know, there is all the oligarchs have a lot of their wealth there. And again, we have seen the chasing of the mega yachts and the mega yachts running to the Maldives to hide or the private jets and all that. So I do hope, I do hope that if not a solution, but at least uh, we will end up not having such a peaceful coexistence with theory and looting one's country. And Russia has been an extreme case of this. I did write several years ago an article in Foreign Affairs titled Mafia State, where I described all of this. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't have it as clear, the notion of moving forward beyond corruption, beyond the kleptocracy, even beyond the Mafia State, to what is the criminalized nation that uses organized crime as a tool of statecraft. So staying on the topic of Russia, in the book, You've got five different battles that you say that we need to win. And one of those is the battle against the big lie. Vladimir Putin's clearly been using big lies to be able to make the claim that the war in Ukraine isn't even really a war. I mean, we're hearing weird stories about the perceptions that people in Russia actually have about what's going on in Ukraine day by day. Joe Biden, though. Before Russia actually invaded Ukraine, began a process of refuting the big lie, standing up against it, disclosing information from the intelligence services to combat Putin's dishonesty. Do you think that Joe Biden provided a template to overcome the big lie? I hope so. I surely hope so. And I hope that this is another of the silver linings of this tragedy, this horrible tragedy. But let me just amplify uh, the examples, because it's not just uh, Vladimir Putin lying about the history of the Balkans. We have George W. Bush lying about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We have Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Great Britain today, who lied concerning Brexit. There were hard data and evidence and a lot of studies that show that it was a catastrophic idea. It was a very bad idea. And yet they changed the numbers. There was a big lie behind Brexit. And of course, we have Donald Trump's big lie concerning the election and the fact that he lost the election and he's just making millions of Americans convinced, persuaded that the election was stolen. So the big lie is a bigger story than what we see now concerning Putin. To finish, I think it's very important that we increase the costs for the big liars to be practitioners of that art. The fact that you tell a big lie and nothing happens is terrible. And so we need to increase the risks and the costs 
It cannot be that just, you know, oops, yeah, I, I lied about a very substantial, important, transcendental matter of state, but, you know, sorry, oops, you know, let's move on. No, there should be more consequences for those that use these big lies that are transformational, that are very important, that are geopolitical in nature. Now, you just mentioned that George W. Bush and Boris Johnson had provided examples where they participated in the big lie or big lies of their own. Are you jumping to say that they are also 3P autocrats, or are you saying that even people that are not 3P autocrats can normalize some of this behavior and make it easier for somebody who is to be able to seize power and hold on to it? Yeah, that's a good question. It's easier to answer for those that are no longer in power, that, you know, had a term in power. George W. Bush was in power, but we didn't see some of this criminal behavior. We did not see what we describe as the behavior of the 3P autocrat. You know, he may have used propaganda and managed information, but not at the levels that we have seen Donald Trump doing it, for example. And I don't think anybody's accusing Barack Obama of being a 3P autocrat. So it, it has to do with the respect for democracy, not trying to undermine, stealthily undermine the checks and balances that define a democracy. That's the test. So in the book you write, what's at stake is not just whether democracy will thrive in the 21st century, but whether it will even survive as the dominant system of government the default setting in the global village. Freedom survival is not guaranteed. Earlier this month, Freedom House published its Freedom in the World survey, where we now have 16 straight years of democratic decline. And that happened before Russia invaded Ukraine. Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine marked a turning point in the democratic recession? Is this something that's going to make things worse? Or is the West's response mark a turning point that maybe things are bound to get better? It depends on how it ends. And things are in flux. As you and I speak, things are happening both in the corridors of power of all the countries involved and on the ground with the shelling and the bombing and the refugee crisis. So we're in the midst of this tragedy. And it's not clear how it is going to evolve What we know is that Russia, if the sanctions, the very severe sanctions that have been imposed on Russia by uh, Europe, the United States, Japan, and many other countries, Switzerland, and others, if those sanctions continue in the next five years, Russia is going to be much, much poorer, and Russians will be much, much poorer. Some of them uh, will be willing to go to the streets and public squares and protest against the regime. And from what we have seen historically, Putin's behavior when threatened is to unleash very, very damaging, painful, inhuman attacks. So one can expect if Russia's standards of living plummet, as it looks like it's going to happen if the sanctions are sustained, there is going to be a horrible repression by Vladimir Putin and his government against the Russians that are protesting, not just for the standard of living, but for the freedom. And is this tragedy at the end good or bad for democracy? Is what's happening in the capacity of Europeans to work together and unite for the first time and act swiftly and not bureaucratically, uh, will this yield a better world in which democracy is more protected? Well, it hinges on what happens in the next few years. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Your book, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century, has been on my radar for months now. And I was so glad to be able to read it. And it just did not disappoint. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you very much for those kind words. Uh, you know, writers never know if what they're writing is going to be okay. And uh, comments like yours matter a lot. Uh, very encouraging. Thank you so much. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.